Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and today we're going to be talking about the incredible book Mind in Motion by Dr. Barbara Tversky. So today's a little bit of an unusual format for the show. Um, I heard about the book Mind in Motion from my friend Glenn Murphy, who's been a longtime friend and martial arts instructor and science advisor and long, uh, multiple guests on this show. And frankly, there was a bunch of stuff in that book that I didn't really understand from a sort of neuroscience perspective. And so I invited Glenn to be on the podcast with me um, to talk with Dr. Tversky about her work. And long story short, you can think about the phrase, I have a body, right? So what does that imply? It implies that I am not my body because I anything I have isn't me. I have, you know, socks, thoughts. I have an itch. Uh, I have an office. And so there's this split in our Western worldview that like between the body and whatever I am or I is that the body isn't. And you might think this is all like philosophical bullshit and totally irrelevant to your actual life. And you might be right. But one of the consequences of thinking that our bodies and minds or our bodies and our identities are distinct from each other is the way we treat our bodies as second class citizens. Right. So in this society, physical labor is not as well paid, not as uh, highly regarded as intellectual labor. We exercise. Why? So we don't get weak or sick or look bad. So the purpose of our bodies for many of us is just to carry our minds around, to carry our eye around. So we take care of our physical health the same way we take care of a car that we needed. And today's guest, Barbara Tversky, who's a um, professor of psychology, both at Stanford and Columbia universities, has spent her professional life questioning this primacy of the mind over the body. And this book, Mind in Motion, argues that our abilities to think and perceive originate in our bodies and more specifically in the process of movement and feedback from the environment. In other words, all thought is actually spatial thought. And we're going to talk about the way our language encodes that. And once you start looking at language from Dr. Tversky's perspective, you see it everywhere. So if you want to grow and evolve, you know, books and philosophies are fine, but challenging your physical body with new sensations and with challenges is a far more powerful engine of evolution. We also used this episode for Glenn's Systema for Life podcast. You can find a link to that in the show notes, which is plantyourself.com slash 431. All right, let's get this thing going. Glenn Murphy and Barbara Tversky, welcome to Plant Yourself. And I guess, Glenn, to the um, Systema for Life podcast as well. Lovely to be here. Yeah. So um, this is an exciting conversation about, um, Barbara, your book, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. And I would love, so Glenn, you introduced me to the book and helped yeah. me think through a lot of the concepts. I'd love for you guys to just take it away and I'll, I'll jump in as, as my curiosity uh, dictates. Yeah, great. And uh, Barbara, it's so wonderful to, to meet you today and to, and to get to uh, see the personality behind the words. It's just, uh, just incredible for me reading the book and just sort of seeing how much richness and depth was in there. You, you can read it four times and still come out with new things, I find. So highly recommend immediately anybody who hasn't read it, get your nose in it as soon as possible. Um, so the central concept uh, of the book is that spatial thinking is the foundation 
for thought, right? It might not represent the entirety of all thought and how it comes about, but it's the foundation. And that's, um, in some ways, that's quite a revolutionary idea. And in some ways, it's been around for a little while. And I'd like to get into the details a little bit if we can. Um, but first off, what, what inspired you to write the book? What need did you see that this book filled? So it goes way back to when I was a graduate student. I was always interested in the visual spatial world. I grew up in in a family of artists, and I dabbled with art and um, architecture. It was something I was always aware of and and enjoyed. And when I got to graduate school, it was dominated by language. Mm. I really thought thinking was in language or language-like propositions. So that view came from philosophy. It came from linguistics. It came from psychology. It even came from introspection, that when we think about thinking or talk about thinking, we use words. Mm. But then where do the words come from? The thoughts yeah. precede the words, and the thoughts are we can't grasp. And then I started thinking about the visual-spatial world, and we can recognize thousands of faces instantly. We can't begin to describe them. Yeah. Same with emotions. So those concepts that are so crucial and central to our lives aren't verbal concepts. And then I started thinking about the brain. And half the cortex is in one way devoted to space because space is multimodal. It's Mm. not just visual. We know about space from hearing and from touching and from all of our sensory modalities. Half the brain is devoted to space. Mm. Yet another, um, babies do incredibly intelligent things before they can speak. And Mm. when they start speaking, everything seems to begin with but. Bus, banana, bottle, right? Mm. And so you hear them say ba, ba, ba. They're not, it's not a deep dive into their thoughts. Mm. So when they're doing intelligent things, animals are doing incredibly intelligent things. So where that thinking can't be language. Sure. It occurred to me that there was a whole, that space preceded language, spatial knowledge preceded language. And that, if anything, language was built on that and not vice versa. And so for many years, the work I was doing, I kind of post hoc, it looks um, very planned, the the research program I eventually carried out. But it was really quite intuitive, finding areas of spatial thinking, visual thinking that language couldn't do. and showing those one after another. But it became coherent after a while and then intentional. But it it seemed to me that we needed to understand how people thought it and dealt with space, Mm -hmm. that that was different from language and important. But because it was space, people marginalized it. They thought it's like music or smell or something that's peripheral. It's not central cognition. Mm. And I think what cinched it as central cognition was the Nobel Prize awarded to O'Keefe and the Mosher's for their work on finding place cells in the hippocampus and an area next door that mapped the place cells spatially. Mm. That caught the attention of people. If it's in the brain in that organized way, Yeah. 
that's really quite remarkable, then maybe it's not so peripheral. Maybe it's... It, so that, I think, changed things in um, the agenda of scientists. Now there are huge numbers of people looking at, at the brain substrates and more paying attention to the behavioral. But it, it's been a struggle. Um, yeah. To get recognition, um, yeah. I'm really gratified that that you found it, and I'm wondering how how did you happen to come across that book? Um, to be honest, it was literally just a recommendation after having read um, other works in cognitive science, and they're like, if you like that, you might like this. So I'm a, I'm very ashamed to say that an algorithm probably steered me towards this book <laughs> rather than my deep dive into research and finding out exactly who was leading all of it. And I think I've been nodded towards it a few times, but I just never fully appreciated the depth of the work. I've come across little bits and pieces. Um, I, I think probably one of the big steering... Um, and I'm just trying to think there was another book that I was um, that referenced it quite heavily. I'll have to pull it back in and put it in the show notes at the end of it. But there was one book in particular that was talking about spatial awareness and some of the research that you'd done and how that fed into the central concept of the book. I, I think actually it might have been um, one about Aboriginal thinking and how people uh, in, Abor- in Indigenous cultures uh, use kind of sand talk and spatial metaphors in order to describe um, movements of things through time, in order to describe ecosystems, like to map things in different ways. And the argument was that we've lost something in our kind of obsession with words and getting things across verbally and that in some ways we're very very kind of stupid compared to some (laughs) indigenous cultures who are extremely well integrated into their ecosystems and seem to transmit kind of practical knowledge very very quickly using images and just kind of circumventing the verbal kind of that way Um, and i think that might have been it i can't remember the exact book but it was it and that kind of set me to thinking like okay what have we lost and what did we have and Surely, especially before the printing press and, and, and where oral cultures were you know, pretty widespread, but still people didn't rely solely on words all the time. There was a lot more gesture. There was a lot more um, action. And, and also, if you think about kind of the cradle of civilization and anywhere in Africa now, there's thousands and thousands of languages. Right. It's the, and any given person has trouble communicating even with somebody about 40 miles away, you know, it's like so many different dialects. And the gesture and action and body language must have preceded the ability to make contact with anybody um, beyond your immediate kind of tribe and area in order to try and kind of, I don't know, find support, make trade, build community, do all the things that we most certainly would have had to do as humans, right, through history. So there were so many little threads that were tied together that made sense. And it's, it was kind of the same thing. I, th- I think I've been kind of chasing this little God in the gaps argument of like, oh, no, we, we think in words, you know, and I've read um, some linguistics some other stuff like that. And, you know, Chomsky and you know, Stephen Pinker and different things like that that seem to suggest some of the opposite along the way. And it never really resonated with me. And then as soon as I started reading in these other ways, it really did. Um, so I'm interested in, so when you said that you met some resistance or it was difficult to kind of get it and then eventually you hit some sort of speed and um, some hump and now people are kind of accepting the ideas a lot more. What was the lines of the resistance? Was it just that people were so convinced that verbal language was so much more important um, that it held some other kind of level of importance in the brain relative to just simple space and coordination? Yeah, no, I think it's that and <clears throat> that, that it was sidelined. It wasn't so much resistance although I got a lot of resistance from early work that I'd done showing that our concepts of space are distorted and theoretical, yeah. that met a huge amount of resistance. And within the spatial cognition community, it's still resisted. Sure. Uh, 
yeah, and I think they're they're just myopic. Um, yeah, use a visual metaphor, right? <laughs> for thinking, no, I think it was more that it was ignored, mm. and it, it, then many things happened at the same time. Some people in studying language started studying gesture, and yeah. gesture had been thought to be the bastard child of language that it was an add-on and irrelevant because, after all, we can communicate on the telephone, we can communicate through written language, so who needs gesture? Mm. And who needs intonation of voices? And, um, and that sort of thing, which isn't in written words. So I think, and gradually, the work on gesture became to be recognized partly through studies of a colleague of mine at, at Columbia, um, who ask people to sit on their hands mm. and then describe things in space, and people yeah. couldn't find words. So, yeah. his, his especially if they're Italian, presumably, so. <laughs> we can get to. And, um, it, 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 even then, it was gestures are for finding words; mm. they aren't for thinking. Mm. I think by now my friend and colleague Bob Krauss is convinced that um, gestures are for thinking independent of language and maybe prior to language. Mm. But the, the inroad came with gestures are, are needed to find words. Mm. And now that looks a little curious because it's so clear that gestures help my thinking and help your thinking. Sure. But we can do without them, and it, it, the miscommunication is um, is greater when you don't have intonation and these analog channels that are yeah. different from words. And um, that's another remarkable feature of the human mind, is that we can use language to imagine space and yeah. to in movement in space, so I can give you directions how to get somewhere, or in your case, what to do with your body, yoga, sure, sure. and that, that sort of thing. I can tell you in words how to do it. I can even tell you in words what you should be feeling inside mm. your body, and that helps draw attention to it. So uh, it, it, the mind, the human mind can, can trade off, not completely, Mm. Because we can describe physical situations in words, and then we can use words to understand real physical situations. So the human mind is quite remarkable in that, in that trade-off. And again, that was something we studied early on, that we can describe elaborate spaces, and people can imagine them, and can imagine moving in them, and can imagine changing them just from language. Sure. Even that relied on knowing about space. Yeah. Otherwise, we couldn't have made those connections, hooking one upward. So another thread on language and your comment about Aboriginals, and I think I know where that research is coming from. I think it's coming from Steve Levinson's lab, um, looking at spatial cognition in many different communities and, and yeah. arguing that they're... They're, um, they use um, an external frame of reference and that they're better located than we are. Yeah. But even there, there and in our own language, we see the 
the use of spatial terms in describing almost anything else. Mm. That we certainly share with, with people who don't go to school, and we, mm. we share it with, so, you know, the, the holidays are coming up, or the hol- we're approaching the holidays, yeah. or, or the holidays are behind us, those are all spatial terms, we've grown closer or far mm. apart, everything's in chaos or upheaval. Those are our spatial or visual or sometimes auditory terms, and our language is filled with them. It's very hard to speak anything without using spatial words um, to describe more abstract concepts. I thought one really interesting concept in the book was that you pointed out that um, human communication systems are redundant, right, that we have... These, we have what people know and understand to be body language. People understand that your legs do certain things, and I teach this in stress-proof courses too, how like you can talk to somebody if you're maybe catching them on the way out of the room or something. If they don't really want to talk to you, they'll turn their torso towards you, but their feet are still pointing towards the exit where they want to go, right? And they can feign interest, and they'll be like, that's fascinating. I really do want to talk to you about that. But their, their legs are saying, I want out of this conversation. And if you can learn to read those cues, then you can understand the person better. And this idea that um, because the body has redundancy that you can lose one thing and catch up with another as you said and the the key examples being that people who are blind um, can get full context of emotion from intonation of voice and things like that they can infer it Um, but so can deaf people deaf people can read um, your emotions from gestures and facial expressions and body movements a lot more and my sister is um, deaf completely in one ear and partially in the other and she lip reads so well that you wouldn't know that she was deaf and the the only way that you can actually not communicate with her is if you scratch your face or something in between but like her voice doesn't it, to give it away nothing does right um, and so she's amazing at that and people just don't know they have no idea right and um, so that's that's amazing to me but i think what most people probably intuit is that yeah we have body language and yeah we have these things that we do to communicate but they're kind of hierarchically they're underneath words and language like given the choice we would always use words and that we only resort to space and gesture when we have to, we don't have words, right? I feel like there's like a, an implicit bias there in most people's way of thinking. But in a, in a very real sense, what you're saying is that because the spatial thinking precedes the ability to form the words and form the thoughts and then get them back out again, it's, it's never really independent of space. Is that, am I right in thinking that? Or is that um, an overgeneralization? I think you're right. And it's, we aren't aware of the gestural and intonational um, effects on our, of others on our own thinking. But in yeah. this way, we aren't really aware of choosing words. Mm-hmm. They pop in our heads. Now, if you're speaking a language you don't know well, you're aware of looking for words. But once yeah. you're fluent in a language, the words just come the way the gestures come and, and, and the intonation comes and we aren't aware of it and we aren't aware of it in other people that we're attending. Yeah. To and, and that that's changing the meaning. I'm, I can change the the meaning of a sentence by an ironic, you know, she's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> incredulous. <isn't> it? <laughs> um, it it totally changes um, the meaning. And I talk to my lawyer friends and say, how can you rely on transcript? Mm. Of court proceedings or transcripts of anything they they they're they're losing so much of the meaning because so much yeah. of the meaning is somebody's hesitant somebody's frightened all mm-hmm. of that somebody's excited 
we pick that up in in a way that isn't captured by words at all. But I think we don't have awareness. And you make me think that some of the reason why we're so much aware of words is they're harder to understand. Hmm. That, that decoding them and decoding syntax, the words in this complicated syntax, that in spoken languages is not upheld. We interrupt ourselves, we break syntax all the time. So that comprehending a sequence of words is just so much harder, takes so much more cognitive effort than, than, than unpacking intonation or unpacking gesture. That that happens almost effortlessly um, that we're embodying it. And some of that embodiment might be the internal mimicry that we have, that human beings naturally mimic um, other people's other people's gestures, other people's facial expressions, other people's body positions. Other you know, somebody straightens up in a meeting, yep. everybody straightens up. Somebody yawns, everybody yawns. That those things, those aspects of communication, are mimicked in our bodies so quickly that, um, and that helps the understanding. That mimicry, motor resonance, is sometimes called the mirror system. Mm. So, and with words, we certainly do some of that. There is a whole theory with evidence that we understand words by attempting to replicate them in our brains. Mm. And I have a good friend, brilliant person, who he's like many of us, not, not 25 anymore. Um, and when we speak, he's saying what I'm saying. So if I'm speaking, he's saying what I'm saying out loud. I hear it. And mm. I think that's a way by articulating it himself, he's understanding it better. So some of us do that implicitly, but I think that mimicry of other people helps us understand. And it's more immediate with these so-called embodied um, sure behavior than it is with the verbal. Gotcha. Howie, I think you had a question about resonance, right? Motor resonance we were talking about before. Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think of a lot of this in terms of sort of our evolutionary survival strategies. So, you know, that we have the same, um, you know, internal wiring, let's say, as the the springboks and the gazelles at the watering hole who all have to be attuned to each other for the group to survive, right? So that it's, it's, it makes sense to me that we would be um, natural readers of posture, of energy, of gesture, uh, of sound, even, you know, sound preceding um, language. I mean, so I, I guess par- partly... It feels like, especially like reading um, pages 184-85, where you, in case you haven't memorized... Is there going to be a test? I didn't realize there was going to be a test. (laughs) In the hardcover edition, you have a game where you list all these words, and you ask us to come up with a literal and essentially a, a metaphorical use of the word, like here or crumble, right, that... The fact that, like, it feels like a con that language is trying to pull on us to make us say that language is the most important thing. And 
it obfuscating these the the physiological basis of our survival and at the same time every single word is tell, is pointing to this thing and it reminded me i don't want, i don't want to exclude glenn here but another hebrew word that comes to mind is the word olam which means world like the universe everything and it also means hidden that which that which is implicate and not um, not manifest and i'm thinking like like how we, are we using language to hide the fact that language is less important? It reminds me of a, one of my favorite comedians, Emo Phillips, had this line. He said, I used to think that the brain was the most important organ in the body. Then I realized who was telling me that. <laughs> right? Like, so, like, is, is, has language tried to pull a fast one on us to hide its dependence on, on, on embodiment? Yeah, and I, I like the, the way you opened, especially um, gazelles need to understand other gazelles. And it, it, I think this is an understudied aspect of humanity. We've, cognition, even social cognition, has been so much between the ears and, and the brain that's telling us that it's the most important organ. And joint action, coordinating with other people, has has been neglected, and that's changing. I think that's one of the most exciting research areas, is looking at how people coordinate, and even looking that people can't not coordinate. You're sitting next to somebody, and your simple job is to press buttons when certain lights come up in the computer, and the person next to you has to do the same thing. But their mapping is different. They do different things with their fingers when the lights come up. If their mapping is different, you're slowed down. <laughs> if their mapping is the same, you're speeded up. You can't see their screen. It's, it's a kind of, you can't help but be aware of the other people and what they're doing. You think in a waiting room for positions, people automatically make room for each other, move aside, adjust their behavior, in every situation, Grand Central, now it's empty, mm. but um, before March, um, it was packed with people who almost never collided. Mm. So, and we make those decisions instantly. We see somebody's in a hurry, we make way. Um, or somebody's disabled, we slow down. Um, so a, a whole set of, of social norms of when I'm aware of this as a woman, who goes first? And there are cultures where the man goes first, and there are cultures where the woman goes first. Hmm. So um, it's, it, but, and those things happen. So even babies, you look at, at, at how do you interact with babies, and the baby says, yeah, and you say, yeah, and the baby says, yeah, and you keep imitating <laughs> each other. And then you turn it into a game. After you've got that going, you say, yeah, yeah, and wait for the baby to do it twice. So that, and it's fun. It's a game, but it's teaching the baby a lot. It's teaching the baby to coordinate their actions with you, which they're naturally wired to do. And it's teaching them to trust you. So you roll a ball back and forth. And the baby doesn't want to give you the ball. But the baby learns you're going to give it back. And then they give it to you and they give it back. So you learn trust. 
And those simple games set the really coordinating in time and space, doing the same thing, like rolling a ball back and forth, doing complementary things where you're clapping and each one is doing slightly different things, or I give you something and then take it. So complementary, those are the basis of human cooperation. So, so yeah, I've got a really, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I've got a really interesting aside on this one. And um, again, I mentioned earlier that we, I teach kind of like a, a martial arts practice or like a, a way of um, understanding other people through movement, essentially. And um, and the methodology is um, Russian. It's from Sistema. And it's very interesting because it's informed by Soviet era physiology and uh, psychology. And some of it from Leonard Bernstein and his work on how um, dexterity develops and all of those things and the kind of areas or levels of complexity in how we interact with each other. And one of the key drills that we do, we call the flocking drill. And so if I describe this to you, maybe you can give me your take on on what's going on in, in a sense, is that we have maybe 10, 12 people in a room and they're all walking in a circle in the same direction to begin with. And then I just tell everybody to pick a central point in the room and walk through that point and to the other side of the circle. And then when you get to the imaginary circle boundary, turn around and walk back. And everybody walks through the circle. And the first time, it's kind of self-conscious, and it's like being a Grand Central Station, like, oh, excuse me, and everybody does like the tango, where they both dodge the same way. And within literally five or ten seconds, and how I can attest to this, because he's done this drill many times as well, everybody just starts flocking like birds. As soon as you stop trying to pay attention to any one person, you defocus your vision, and you stop attempting to focus on individual things uh, or people, you just naturally flock and move through people. If you just imagine you have somewhere to be, you can just do this drill indefinitely, and nobody hits anybody else. The only person that hits anybody else is somebody who's feeling stressed or self-conscious and they're kind of too wrapped up in themselves so if you kind of cede control of your mind and your body to this this spatial sense and just trust it then it manifests itself very very quickly but uh, and the basis of this self-defense form that we have is that actually most of the time what people do if you if you're physically approached or threatened usually you either freeze right standard fight freeze or flight thing and you stay still and that makes you a target um or you clash with it um, or you just run away, like this way. And the basis of our methodology is essentially just in training. Like you entrain your body to the other person. If they step slightly to the right to try and get an angle, you kind of do the same thing. And what this does is not just create kind of better angles for escaping or moving or fighting. It actually makes the other person in an odd way feel like you you shouldn't be fighting anyway. It makes them feel relaxed because you're not behaving in the typical ways that you would expect if there's an aggressive encounter. And this enables you to control the person without using as much physical force. So in that, in that kind of way, in, the, in your book, you kind of break down different uh, areas of the brain that relate to different aspects of spatial cognition, right? And there's one in which we label objects and things in our environment. There's one where we um, sense and label internal sensations in the body, like the boundary within your skin, right? Um, and then there's another which just takes in the scenery around you. And provided that nothing changes, we're kind of fine with that. And that creates change blindness and a bunch of other things too, right? We, we just we say, okay, I'm in the gym or I'm in the garden, I know where I am and how I'm supposed to behave. Now I can focus on other things and I, I just ignore everything else. Um, but what's happening in that kind of, in that interaction is you're noticing other people, right? You're noticing their bodies and their changes and their directions. Um, and you're adjusting yourself on the fly to this. Now this, in terms of calculations, if you had to stop and think about all of these things or your brain, well, surely the processing speed would be ridiculous. I and mean, I can't imagine somebody programming AI robots to do this very 
effectively, you know, something like that. So what's actually happening? What What's the primary mechanism when people do that, when they flock, like, effectively? Yeah, I'm wondering what you mean by flock, but... Um... It's, it's not moving the same way. It's moving around each other, as, but without without. Um, so you're acknowledging the other person's body and their movement. And I think you mentioned in the in the book that there are different areas for bodies that are static versus a body in motion. Right? That we see that in a different, slightly way. So is that what's happening? Do we see control to that one part? Right. And and again, that's going to be on the level of, of perceptual mode or coupling, without okay. into anything elaborate. But, but is controlled thinking right mm. so it, you confuse me on flocking because i can't help but think of birds all going oh, in sure. a school of fish and that's quite different I maybe remember, mingling mingling is a better word than <laughs> yeah, and it is amazing how how easily and qu- every once in a while you get i get on the, the crowded sidewalks of new york you come to a person and it's you it's not clear who's going to go which way, and then you kind of do head motions, right? Mm. So I'll mm. go this way, and you go sure. that way, and then and there are norms for that too. That in in cultures that read Western cultures that read from left to right. On the whole, you go to on the right side or drive on the right side, and so you avoid people by going to the right. Mm. Right, that's a cultural thing. I don't know if you'd find that with your groups merging, but in uh, Japan, the norm yeah. is to go left, mm. and, and you go the uh, the escalators are on your left, and so forth. So there's, but they're aware of Western, so there's ambiguity there. And sure. in UK, I find ambiguity because they drive them. I'm the same. Yeah, I'm from the UK. I learned to drive on the left, and now I live. In, I've lived in America for 13 years. There's no. I don't think there's any particular valence to it when I do the drill. It's just purely what's happening, and then just an adjustment happens, which is based on predicting the path that the other person's taking. But there's no conscious effort required to look at that path and extend it in time. It's just we're just reading subtle cues of like which way is the shoulder moving, where do they seem to be, and it, it reminded me of the experiment you talked about in the book where. Um, they had basketball players watch people taking free throws and like, and you'd still shoot the video either when it was about to go in the hoop or when it was um, halfway, or even when you were about to release the ball. And even just by looking at the hand motion, they could tell with fairly good um, accuracy, which shots were going to go in and which weren't. So we learned to read these subtle cues on a level that we don't even really understand. And the the more I've taught and trained in this method, the more I've realized that it's a, it's a series of undoing that you're actually trying to, carve away the layers of extraneous thought that are getting in the way of us doing these things. It's almost like our innate ability to move through our environment and um, that we've enjoyed probably for thousands of years is being suppressed by this kind of um, this insistence that we have to stop and think about everything and consider it very, very carefully <laughs> in minutiae kind of things. There's something like that going on. I think so. I don't know how much of it is suppressing language is learning new skills. Mm-hmm that you haven't learned and the martial arts would be an example and I, I just want to go back to avoiding people in the streets Sure. start looking because I know Americans go right and when, they, when two people are meeting there's a tendency to go right and I, mm. I feel that when I go to Japan I'm wanting to move to the right of people coming to me and they're wanting to move to the left and then we collide so okay. learn to be Japanese um, mm. 
so it, it counted. I mean, and I, okay. you know, in the streets of London, everywhere, it says, look right, look left. Sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly because that looking behavior crossing the street, which we're not born with, right? Sure. That's primarily for French people who come over. I grew up in uh, Kent, right, 20 miles from France, and people would come across on, on the train or not even driving pedestrians, and then they would go into the road, look the wrong way, and then get mown over by a car. So they painted that on all the streets to stop Europeans from the yeah. mainland getting run in, over. In, in English, though. Not in French. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got to keep imperialism. I mean, so. <laughs> And, and as a generic language, no, I have a friend who was killed that way. So oh, those wow. things are we're not born with, but we learn quickly. And in many skills, like learning tennis or learning golf or learning your martial arts, you start with language until it becomes embodied. Typing, you know, by the time we're experienced typists, we don't know where the keys are. If I ask you, where's the X key? Okay, where's the X key? I just moved my finger. Bottom left. Bottom left somewhere. The X key is here. It's on the left ring finger. Right. So that's the only way we know where it is. But once we were looking at the keyboard and mapping it and slowly. So I think it's not so much that language gets in the way as those are skills that have to be learned. And they they can take years of practice. Basketball, like the expert basketball players are reading the field, knowing where everybody is and trying to fake people by their actions. But some of that we learn very early. So how do I know, you know, you see babies crying when they're picked up and moved toward the bedroom. Right? They've learned that moving toward the bedroom means they're going to be taken away from the company and they don't want to be taken away from yeah. the company. So they burst into tears, which is the only way they can communicate at that point. So, But we learn those the meanings of, of those actions quite quickly and they become automatic. Like, mm. or, so, yeah, I mean, and and they have to. Otherwise, I mean, you must. And the people that over intellectualize, like what key in the piano, and should I play it soft or sharp or quick, or even in your martial arts, the people that over intellectualize and don't let go, and yeah, yeah and let their bodies do the learning. I mean, I did enough gymnastics as a kid that it's standing on my hands. I know that the body, I'm not going to control it. The body's going to make the adjustments that let me balance. Yeah. And I got to trust the body on, on that. So I think, so I think there's also, there's, um, there's, I think there's an intuition that people have, that people have different ways of absorbing or learning things, right? And maybe this comes from kind of gardeners' work on different intelligences, parts, parts a good amount of which or some has been kind of a bit discredited since or that's been extrapolated to areas where it probably didn't apply all the way across. But I think there's this idea that people really are, that some people learn better verbally, other people learn better kinesthetically or visually and things like that. So some of the resistance that I can anticipate to this argument or when I've started talking about it, oh, it's so much of thinking is spatial and it just relies on this foundation, is people say, yeah, but not me. 
I, I think in words, right? I think in words first. And you had that beautiful example in the book. I think it was Richard Feynman or something that said that when he was taught about that, he had a friend who was a mechanic that said, you know, that crazy shape um, of the crankshaft in an, in an engine. And the guy's like, yeah. And he goes, uh, what did you tell yourself when you just described that to, you know, when you just described that to yourself or something like that. Right. And then that was his light bulb moment. That, oh yeah. Like some thinking is just, it's just imagery or it's just spatial and it's not verbal. Like, uh, but it seems to me that you could interpret your book as sort of saying, proclaiming that we're all primarily visual or kinesthetic learners, right? That, that we have to learn um, through interaction with our environment and that feedback loop between sensation, action, and like feeling while you're doing kind of thing, and that nobody is at heart a verbal learner. Is that an overinterpretation of, of kind of what you're saying in that book? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's absolutely no evidence that some people um, are verbal thinkers and some visual. There's no sure. yeah. to say that I'm a kinesthetic learner. I mean, we all have those capacities in us. But we have those trade-offs where we can use language to imagine space. We can learn language to learn how our body should be positioned and what it should be feeling and where those connections may take a long time. But we can. We all have some capacity for going back and forth, and it's partial. Mm. So each 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 modality has its own special contributions. So there are clearly things that deaf people miss, that that blind people miss, if they're mm. blind from birth or, or deaf from birth. There are certain aspects of the world that they might be missing when people lose, become paraplegic. There are certain sensations and things that that, that they may lose. So mm-hmm. it's overlap and connectivity amongst those modalities. Yeah. One, so it's special contribution. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm interested in all in everything you've been talking about from I guess a cultural perspective and think like when you talk about the basketball players who are experts or highly trained or the typists who you know who move beyond the intellectual into the embodied there are cultures in which certain things are are taught so that by the time you're 10 you're an expert in them so like uh, you know philip uh, raymond gibbs did work with like, embodiment and um, cognitive science around like this word, the, um, the, the Anlo Ewe tribe have this word, which is sort of an internal sense of balance, like feel, feel, and flesh inside that every one of that culture had developed. And I'm, I'm questioning, we're in a culture that has become so heavily intellectualized and disembodied in the language that we're using, that, um, that that we are in a sense beginners at we're we're beginning typists at life. A lot of aspects that would just be intuitive and would be flowing for people who who see themselves less as individual. Because if I'm an individual atom, then I and I'm separate from everything else, then I have to calculate what everything else is going to do. Whereas if I'm entrained which seems to be something that can come naturally, then I'm a cell of, of an or I'm, I'm part of a super organism, which I think we're, we're, we're seeing a lot in like, you know, yoga classes, dance classes, um, things where, where people do naturally allow themselves to become entrained. And I think we have fewer and fewer of those opportunities in this world. So I'm, I'm wondering your, your, your thoughts on that. You know, and there's only so much time. 
in a day and how much can we do and accomplish and how many skills can we acquire and people you know complain about about our phones that have um that give us directions that nobody knows how to find their way anymore. And I say, yeah, nobody can take a square route. Nobody can fix a a bicycle, but we have other, so we give up something, but we gain certain time and efficiency from other things. There's only so much we can do. But what I will lament is, and for many, many reasons, is the absence of, serious physical activity in schools of of sports where you're playing with teams. So you learn to win, you learn to lose, you learn to cooperate with your team. You learn all those movement skills of adjusting to each other, passing to each other, those sorts of skills, which I think are really important life skills, not just physical skills. And it would, in my mind, I think, prevent a great deal of obesity um, if kids were moving and had an hour, a serious hour of PE every day and after school activity. And I grew up that way. And I don't want to sound like an old fogey that is advocating going back to... um, But I think... And I watch my children and grandchildren and I watch city people and suburban people and the idea... I think that... that Doing serious physical activity in schools would would prevent a great deal of obesity and would keep bodies. What I would say your book argues is we can we you know, I don't think anyone would would disagree that exercise would prevent obesity but I think what you're saying is that exercise would also make people smarter, more socially adept. <laughs> the yeah, then. yeah. But that's that. They learn to cooperate. They learn to win and lose. So there's emotional experiences there that are that are important. Um, and there's made, you know shaking hands with the opposite team after a game, to, congratulating them on their whatever. It's all um, healthy social skills that that again are going to and they're physical, but they're going to underlie cooperation. And many businesses you see now take people off-site and try to make up for the past that didn't have enough of that in order to build teams, and they use those physical activities, cooperation and teams against each other, um, to build the social skills that we all need to live in a society. We can't be hermits. Can I ask you a question about just building on uh, Howie's point about um, that there are benefits to physical education, as you said, especially like for kids, but I think probably lifelong as well. Like as soon as we, I mean, arguably we we probably play sports and do things more when we're kids or just physical games and it tails off as you go through high school. And then unless you're a competitive sports person or you you really enjoy playing the sport to win and to do other things, usually by the time we're 25, other things get in the way. You have families, you're like, oh, this is hard. And then you kind of, see a renaissance of that when you have kids of your own and you have to teach them how to play soccer or run around or something like that. But there's this lull in between, um, between kids maybe. And then after kids where where we just kind of lapse into a sessile existence. And of course, this is very pertinent now with COVID and people being locked up indoors. And we've seen this weird kind of 
um, balance between the fact that some people have been stuck at home and so now they're finally like, oh, wow, I really want to get outside. I feel like I'm in prison. I want to go for a walk. I want to go for a run. So there's been some small uptick in kind of physical activity from that. But then there's also been the, the kind of feeling of helplessness and like, what's the point? I'll just binge watch Netflix and sit here, for, wait for this thing to pan out, especially in America where it's not, never ending, <laughs> where we didn't implement a decent lockdown. So it's just there's no end in sight, you know. Um, and I, I'm really interested, though, in not just what that does for you physiologically, because I think most people are like, yeah, if you slob around, probably your cardiovascular health is going to suffer, your you know, bone density and other things are going to suffer. Um, but this idea that um, you've got trade-offs, this is, I think, your first law of con- cognition, right? In, in everything, you gain something, you lose something, you have to trade something off, you lose something. So in, in looking, in not noticing details in scenery, the trade-off there is meaning. Like I know what I'm supposed to do in this area just by recognizing that it's a gym or that it's a school or whatever it's going to be, but we don't bother looking for fine details unless we're like a secret service agent. We have to spot the, the one assassin or something, right? And you have to be trained back into that, literally. Like I've worked with people that do that and they're trained to see 20 things in the room as soon as they walk into it, right? Or how many of these things could I pick up and get a swing with? Or you know, how, where are the exits immediately? You know? So that's very interesting. But this other idea that the action molds perception, I think it's maybe like second or third in your um, laws of cognition that are in there. And this idea that uh, how we interact with the world alters our perceptions of it. So I'm interested in this idea that movement or interacting with the world or physical education isn't just for the body. It's, and it's not even necessarily just for teamwork and learning interactions with other people. Um, how to get along with them. But it's also like it alters the, the fundamental way, the, the choices, choices that you have, you might say the affordances, the mental affordances increase if you have more physical affordances. Um, and you mentioned, we mentioned before we started recording about Moshe Feldenkrais and, and like his ideas about um, you know, building awareness through movement, paying very, very close attention to the feedback loop between simple actions like just lifting an arm and watching what the sensation is and putting it back down, um, the sensory feedback that you get and just kind of feeling while doing and in doing so kind of um, rewiring your nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, so that it fires a little better and a little bit more um, in more of a coordinated way so that you become more efficient in your movements and you become what he calls more mature. And he described like uh, babies getting up to a certain level of maturity, physical maturity of walking. And then after that point, once we learn to walk, you can kind of stop there and not learn any more coordination or dexterity than that. Or you can become a gymnast or a parkour person or a capoeirista or something, right? You can take it as far as you want. But I think he was arguing, and interestingly, Feldenkrais was also the first judo expert in first European to get a black belt in judo. He trained under Jigoro Kano, the founder of judo, and brought it to Europe single-handedly and wrote this beautiful book called Higher Judo that argued that judo and martial arts were basically a way they were introduced by Jigoro Kano to Japan as a form of... um, not as fighting, but a physical education for kids. That's what judo was distilled for in Japan, right? And he argued that um, the, the very, very complex dexterity required to make contact with another body, to feel the pressures that were moving, to have a shared sensor of gravity and move around that point and become effortless in your movements and not just kind of struggle with people, gave you not just physical affordances in the world, but mental affordances that made you more psychologically pliable or more psychologically versatile. Have you, have you got anything to say about that? Or is, it, is there anything in your research which seems to dovetail with that? Yeah, no, and and again, it's an area that needs more research. I can only point you to one study, and that Mm. was done by a French cognitive scientist who was a wrestler. 
and mm. loved wrestling. And wrestling, again, is you have to interact with somebody else's body, the sense their body, where there's give. And then you can apply pressure where there's given that body. But it's all done through the body and through it's very much three-dimensional thinking and sure. complicated three-dimensional thinking because it's not flat surfaces, it's bodies and which way can they move and which way can that other body move and how can I move it? It's really quite um a complicated set of so he um, so having good spatial ability is important for many different occupations and for many different um, computations that the mind can do. And one of the major ones is mental rotation, imagining something in another orientation. And those tests are usually visual, uh, uh, comparing the orientations of two things. And it's... Um, there are people who are better at it and worse at it, and it, it predicts behavior in in a wide variety of situations that are more. Comp- uh, it predicts understanding of step uh, step by step explanations. It predicts making explanations that are step by step of almost any kind of phenomenon. So it's an important ability. This very simple mental rotation and. It's used as the major dependent variable for measuring spatial ability. I should say there are many spatial abilities, just like Mm -hmm. many verbal ones, and that was something harking back to are we verbal thinkers or visual thinkers? There There are many ways to be a visual or spatial thinker and many ways to be verbal ability is not unitary, neither of them is. Um, so this French cognitive scientist wanted to demonstrate, because he was in a wrestling aficionado, that wrestling would improve spatial abilities. Mm. So he, he, I think it was a month of practicing wrestling for novices and a month of doing very spatial tests. And in fact, the wrestling was better at mm. spatial abilities and Oh, and he did aerobic exercise, too, bicycles and that sort of thing. But the the wrestling per se was a better um, a better way to boost these mental rotation abilities. It, it, it makes sense because in wrestling you're imagining different sure. orientations. Rotation this way as well as this way, right? In, in tennis you only have to worry about, am I going left to right and anticipating a ball? But in wrestling you can do this, right? <laughs> also what arms and legs can do and what forearms and shoulders can do. So it becomes much more complicated than than. But in a wider, so that's one way of improving the spatial ability is is wrestling. But another colleague and friend, David Utah, spearheaded a meta-analysis of hundreds of studies that have attempted to increase spatial thinking. Because, again, it turns out to be an important predictor in success in math, in success in science, and in other fields. Mm. So that it, it, and it's not taught in school. Mm. Teach reading and writing. We don't teach spatial thinking. We don't teach how to read maps. We don't teach how to understand graphs. All that needs to be taught. And it mm. is, so it needs to be. Um, and then there was a National Academy of Sciences report that came out strongly on that. I don't know how much of an effect it's had. But um, 
So it, it turns out that to increase spatial ability, wrestling helps, but many other things help. Sure. Almost anything you could think of that yeah. would increase spatial abilities does help increase it. And showing which things are better for all people is tricky. Yeah. Just hasn't been done. <laughs> and that, so any of those things can help, and probably the more you do, the better. And that gets back to the issue of are there visual spatial learners or verbal learners? When educators tried, and they try each generation to pick out the students that are stronger visual spatially or stronger verbally and match educational exercises to ability, it doesn't work. What Mm. works is giving everybody both. Mm. So variety works. Mm. And having people have many hooks to the learning, whether it's visual, spatial, maps and diagrams and graphs and also verbal explanations, that having more of that helps everybody. And that if you miss one hook, you'll get another hook. You'll have another. So having multiple hooks and multiple modalities for thinking about anything um, encourages that learn um, rather than trying to do this complicated matching. Okay. Gotcha. Howie, did you have a you had a question? Um, yeah, I mean, so for second law of cognition, action molds perception. The way I think of perception is basically its existence. Like what what you perceive is like your experience, you know, your awareness, your experience of of existing, of being alive. And I think that you know that argues for like we're talking, you're talking about exercise specifically. We have a very pathology based view like we exercise to prevent obesity to prevent heart disease or an attainment mentality like okay what well, we're going to teach people exercise so they can be better scientists better mathematicians more socially adept but it feels much more fundamental that movement creates our reality and that the you know sort of the more movement we do and feedback we get from it and the more movement we coordinate with other people sort of the the more we become as as beings, the more we can kind of become ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, that's interesting. So it, it depends on what we're perceiving and what actions we're doing. So I, I might get very good at basketball, or I might be, get very good at walking New York City and seeing the different architectural styles and the way the streets are organized and the way people are moving. And I'm paying more attention to that. So it it depends on uh, a bit. um, You know, I have these behind me. I'm reading in the papers today that the museums are opening and very excited to go back to them. I can interact with paintings by, you know, embodying what I'm seeing, feeling what I'm seeing. So what reality do you want to create? And and brief lives, but sure. Um, And, you know, so it's what reality we... And walking the streets of New York or the mountains of, of Italy... Um, you can be paying attention and interacting on different levels, looking at the wildflowers, looking at the geological formations. There are so many different ways of interacting. And again, mm-hmm. the variety is going to be good, but 
and we can train our eyes and our ears to listen to words. So it, 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 the world is so rich and offers so much. <laughs> right. And yeah, and that's that's why I feel like like the atomization that I have felt around. So I sit in front of my computer and like I am an, I am a separate individual. Like um I was reading recently about the the fake arm studies. Have you seen, you know what I'm talking about where they they have a mirror and, two, and one arm is yours and the other is a plastic arm and they, you know, it's in the book, I believe. Yeah. Right. Okay. So they'll, they'll, right, so they can train, they can train you to to think that something that's not you is you, um, which is a you know, sort of interesting trick of empathy. But like, I mean, just politically, I see we live in such a fractured world where people don't share the same reality. I think, you know, training people to, to do things together, to move together in movements and to interact with nature might ground us. It feels like, it feels like just our culture is very ungrounded in what makes us healthy, happy, socially functioning humans. And I felt like there was so much in Mind in Motion that I interpreted as potential antidotes or potential directions for, for healing. Yeah, no, thank you. And right, we need we are polarized and we tend to I mean and people have been saying this, we live in echo chambers and you live on one of the coasts in America. I don't know the geography well, the cities in the UK versus the country and you end up talking and interacting with people who share your views and demonizing the other. So in it, Human beings have so much potential, both to cooperate and to fight. So, and, and we see that in history all over the place. And cooperating more is certainly good, and we emphasize globalization. But once resources get tight, you tend to go back into your own community. You're going to protect your people first and if the resources are tight, you want them for you and your people, the widening, and not for the other people. You see them as competitors. So it, it, those tensions both ways work, on, you know, for good and for bad. Um, and there have been many studies showing that when different groups that are usually at odds cooperate, and work together on a common project that they do like each other more and learn to appreciate each other's points of view or avoid them, avoid the conflicts that might come out of them. And I can give you lots of examples. There have been, unfortunately, or sadly, studies that show that sometimes the opposite happens, that working together with groups that you may not appreciate can actually heighten tensions. So it, again, is subtle and depends on how the cooperation is based and how it, how it transpires. But, mm. you know, finding ways to emphasize the cooperative aspects of humanity, I think, I agree, are really important, especially now. And, again, some of the issue is deep, is scarcity of resources and that's a sad aspect of the current situation is yeah. people ill people unemployed people 
and the K distribution where the rich get richer and the poor get poor and the system seems to be rigged that way. Um, yeah, and people protecting their own wealth and not wanting to share it. Um, yeah. How much? So I had a question about that as well. Like, um, do you foresee any? I mean, we've, our vistas have changed a lot, right? for, and it's not for everybody. Some people have been barely affected by this, right? They all worked at home as bankers or, like, you know, <laughs> things that worked on computers all the time. So they just shifted location from an office to home. And I know people who are actually a lot happier. My friend is, you know, six weeks right now in the outer banks, North Carolina, on his laptop, still working for Credit Suisse, because, <laughs> you know, why be at home working for Credit Suisse or at the office when he can be in the outer banks and, like, drink lagers and float in the sea every evening like, after his day's work, right? So so he's fine he's doing okay like and the self-isolation is fine for him other people who have people facing jobs are in a terrible state and they're just very very um worried about their ability to support themselves they don't want to be reliant on other people but they're kind of trapped in this new vista where they're stuck at home and this is what they're looking at how much of um do you foresee any kind of population level effects on limiting that personal vista and spending long periods of time in this two-dimensional focus, like just focusing on a screen and not getting that kind of shifting from place to place. Because you describe in the book how we, you know, we know how to behave when we go into a new scene. We just kind of assess the scene and we're like, oh, these are the kinds of things I, set, I associate with being at work. Unless something has changed, I can just assume that I should get on with things this way, right? And we just kind of get on with stuff. But it seems to me now that people trying to work from home it's not the same. It's not because you don't have those same psychological affordances when you're sitting at home as you do when you go to a place with other people who are all sharing a purpose. And the loss, not just of that place, but also of that purpose, is resulting kind of a bit of like a loss of identity for some people. They're feeling like aimless in the same way that, you know, bereft of Google Maps, a lot of people couldn't find their way around their town anymore. It's like bereft of those routines and those places and those three-dimensional structures we built in our lives. A lot of people now aren't quite sure how they should go about their entire day. You know, they have to try and build these artificial routines and structures just to get themselves out of bed and moving every day. And I'm not <clears throat> at all speaking for myself. As a <laughs> no, I, I, I wonder about your friend in North Carolina. It, 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 especially now when there's hurricanes, um, <laughs> although North Carolina has been spared this time um, for a long period of time because <laughs> most of us need that social interaction. People are complaining they can't hug each other, they can't um, joke with each other, they can't, I mean, that we really miss the physical presence of other people and many people are find, you see, are finding ways to do that. And, yeah. In, in bars are open and people are much too close together and you worry about, you worry about but the thirst to be with other people. So you're always going to find individuals who are really happy alone and working and don't need to be, well, maybe need to be with one or two. But, um, sure. yeah, I think my feeling, and I haven't looked at surveys, but from what I read about journalistic things is that, that people are really thirsty three-dimensional contact with people with the smells of of other people and of restaurants and of cities and so forth so i and even going back to getting along with other people there i'm i know there are that cities tend to be more liberal and tolerant than cities tend to be more diverse 
and more liberal and talented. You see in New York and certainly in London that I think even more in New York, we're living with people of many different races, sizes, colors, backgrounds, education, foreign, not foreign. Um, And we're interacting all the time. We used to be riding the trains and buses with them. I still am, even though other people are frightened of it. So they're, they're... Again, resources are scarce. There's fear in the world. People retreat. And many did go to the country. I think they missed out on on all sorts of things by fleeing. But the fear overcame them, and they were many of them were protecting themselves, and probably sensibly. I know older people are more are more at risk, but. Cities do tend to exactly encourage the kind of cooperation with other groups that I think we need. And they are more liberal and tolerant and wanting to share resources rather than hog them, than than cultures, than situations where you're, you're with only people of your own sort. And, yeah. and I think many people are feeling trapped and lose focus. So and I, I wrote a short piece on this. And again, coming from spatial thinking as the foundation of all thought, we have spatial spaces, real spaces that we navigate every day inside the house, outside the house. But map in the, the brain maps our social spaces uh, and our conceptual spaces on the same structure. So we have social spaces, conceptual spaces, spaces of morals, and so forth. And what COVID did in sheltering in, if not being locked in, um, is disrupt all of those. How does it work? How do we get food if we can't go outside? How do we see the people we need to see and love to see? And observing people around me, after you figured out a way to get food inside your house, whether you dared in America to go out to a supermarket and buy food or you had it carted in, um, once you settled that, what people wanted was their social spaces, Mm. So the hierarchy of needs, right? Once they sorted survival, it goes back to we need social contact and then lobby and hierarchy of needs that all of us we really crave seeing the people we needed to see. And Zoom helped and FaceTime and Skype and all of those media help, but they aren't the same as being able to hug people and and be in full three dimensions. But that mm space seemed like after the basic needs that one. And even if you go back to the basics of space and the movements that are possible in space, the most elementary movement, and amoeba can do this, one-celled creatures, bacteria can do it, is whether you approach something or go away from something. Hmm. And those are in, inherently in humans. I can't speak for amoeba. Inherently, those are emotional. Yeah. You approach things you like. You retract. You re- things that repulse you, they're pulling you back. And approach, yeah. 
the things that attract you, that pull you toward them, are likable and emotionally positive and so forth. So if the basic emotions are go if are positive or negative, those are instantly reflected in spatial actions. Mm. Should we approach, should we avoid? And for social things, that's the first thing. Do we approach people? Mm. Are we friendly and warm and opening, or do we turn our heads and and walk away and avoid people? And what was terrible, in a way, about the social distancing is that it taught us to fear, to retract from people, to move away from people. If we couldn't walk to the other side of the street, we turned our heads. And that's... It feels foreign to act toward people that way. So we learned that very quickly. I was astounded. Again, I walked New York from day one because it was safe to be outside, even if it was cold. Um, It was safe to be outside. And I watched everybody walking to the other side of the street. There were very few people in the street avoiding each other. And that's awkward, but we learned it in days, yeah, or hours, and I think we'll be able to unlearn it too. And hopefully, <laughs> the bubbles now or that are protected, where you are meeting a set of friends who've been careful and nobody's been ill, and you allow yourself to be six feet without masks with them. And or six feet with masks, and maybe you'll eat together, so you pull down the mask. So we're 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 slowly putting our toes in the water to do, and hoping that the virus won't rear its ugly head again. um, Has some places, but yeah, those needs of approaching people. Yeah. So, so Howie, if you didn't mind me, I, I have one more question that I just really wanted to get in, um, just because yeah. I understand you might be running out of time, but I just really wanted to ask this to Professor uh, no, Versky. Uh, so like, uh, what, um, what do you feel like is the true value of this understanding of spatial thinking? Like, Where could the idea be most fruitfully applied? Would it be in changing the way that we learn? Would it be in changing the way that we communicate to each other? Or do you foresee that understanding this in a deeper way might kind of help shift some of the paradigms of like verbal culture to kind of like a more complete mode of thinking that consciously recognizes and incorporates like images, gestures, spaces, body language, like that we don't run from it, that we all understand that we're thinking, feeling, sensing physical creatures again. But do you, uh, to, to my mind and to a lot of the people that I work with and uh, are in this cult of, of, of movement towards, you know, uh, of getting kind of back to a, a more natural way of thinking and moving and feeling. Um, this, this seems to offer just a lot of uh, promise and, and that it might be an antidote to some of the things, not only that are happening right now with COVID, but isolation and stuff, but just the general trajectory of society. I mean, even beyond COVID, we're probably going to end up having our jobs, our physical jobs replaced by robots. And, you know, a lot of the physical reasons that we go and do things might go away. Um, you know, we won't be drivers anymore and stuff like that. So we're probably going to move towards a world that's probably more sessile anyway. So knowing that, um, do you feel like there's some innate value in understanding this now so that we can kind of prepare for a world where we're still sensing, thinking, feeling, moving bodies instead of, like as Howie said, brains in a jar? Thanks for bringing all of that up. I mean, 
there are challenges to robots. The self-driving cars have not been a success. Everyone, all the engineers thought it would be a snap. What's holding it up is social behavior, is not understanding how people think. And robots that have to interact with people, that's, again, a huge challenge. It's not just learning to do the many skills that human beings do effortlessly. It's, it's also um, learning to interact with people, which we do quite effortlessly and without a great deal of conscious effort. So what I found really rewarding in this book, again, I'm kind of tied to research and a little bit reluctant to, go, to speak beyond it because of this um, training that I had early on and being a hard-headed researcher. But what's been enormously gratifying to me is seeing different cultures pick up different things from the book. So you, the two of you have picked up the importance of movement and body to thinking and to behaving and to understanding. The people in the human-computer interaction world have picked it up. The people in design world have picked it up. The people in hardcore thinking and, and language have picked it up because of the, the language aspects. Um, people in art, I've worked with a number of artists. I'm working with one now. And they've picked it up partly through the way that their sketches speak to them, that artists say and architects say that they're having a conversation with their eye and their hand and what they page, and words get in the way. They can draw and design and, and produce art, but if they're talking about what they're doing, it just interferes. It's really a well-orchestrated conversation between the eye and the hand. What's on the page and understanding that quickly um, in a nonverbal way. So they've picked it up. Um, people who appreciate art and are looking at museum educators, looking at the way people respond to art. Again, it feels embodied that you're incorporating the emotional aspects of of artworks in your body as you see them. And so it, it, people in sports, it's, it's been enormously great. Clinicians, clinical psychologists, a number of them have reached out and agencies, and, and there's a whole movement in the Netherlands on mental space based on spatial cognition, and it's about clinical practice and understanding various, um, various um, problems that people are dealing with and again so it's it's been I, I didn't expect this mm. and I mean I'm enormously gratified by the number of different communities that saw something in that book that resonated with them. I mean scientists certainly because so much of science is thinking in models mm. Those models are visual, spatial, and more direct than words in the same way that gestures are more direct than words. So it's given me uh, so many ideas, and I wish I had another life mm -hmm. and other uh, 20 graduate students and postdocs to kind of carry out the research program because there's so much left to be done. So. Yeah, okay. I'm enormously gratified by your interest and your questions. 
Yeah. Well, well, we're so grateful. I mean, for my part, just thank you so much for writing such a rich book. I think this is going to, I think it's going to be a classic, honestly. I think it's going to kind of be like a pivotal book that people look back to like, and, and say, oh, that, this was a turning point in how we think about thinking. Um, and it's like I said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to launch so many different things. So just bravo and thank you for your dedication to, to sitting down and getting all of this in one place because I'm sure it was a Herculean effort just getting all these ways of thinking about thinking down. So it's uh, so thank you for the resource that you brought to the world. Um, thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Th thank you so much for, for take, carving out 90 minutes of your life to share it with us and with our listeners. It's a pleasure. And I, I, I get so much from your questions and your gratitude. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks a lot. We'll, we'll, let, we'll let you know when we each publish and, uh, Look, look, looking forward to staying in touch. Okay, and best of luck in your endeavor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much once again. All right. I hope you were edified and entertained by that episode. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the mission of the show, you can subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron of the show. As you notice, there's no advertising for underwear or socks or mattresses or delivery services. This is just me and you. And between the two of us, we pay the bills. So if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. If you're new to Plant Yourself, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes, including uh, the show notes for this one at plantyourself.com. So what's going on in garden news? Not a whole lot. The kale is growing back. The fences are all fixed um, in running news. Not much running this week, although I am getting ready for a noon run today, which I'm looking forward to. I'm expecting to do about six miles. I would say three quarters of it will be running and a quarter will be either jogging or walking. I had a little bug over the weekend, so I'm hoping to uh, not push myself back into bed. Um, OK, let's talk about thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for the show. You can find out more about Will and listen to more of his beautiful choral music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Let's say all the names today. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filinowski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colin Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rose Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fransick, Dina Bedham. Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Daron Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Reiser, Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Oman, Molly Levine, Inscrutable, Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Culpel, Julia Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Yacht. Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzunwak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divitt, Joshua Summerwire, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lynnae Lundquist, Valerie Humble, Emily Akinelli, Levy Wallach, Rosalind McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan. 
Patty D. Martino, Mike Nada Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Burial, Kunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trish Adams, Dean Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashar, Gunn Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullage, Laura Heaton, Meg from Amistez, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Turville, Mark Fabry Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perriman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone. Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>